pretty, this thing's pretty loud, isn't it? Back row, can you hear it? That's right. If I stuck it back, bow will kill me. I'll put it right back. Can you hear me now? Because I'm a pretty loud talker, and I might throw that microphone <laughs> at somebody because I'll get to doing this. Uh, my name is Bill Crawford, and I'm an alcoholic. And it is an honor to be here. I've been here right much. It's nice to be invited back, but I've been here enough over the years that this feels like a home conference to me. I've met so many of you and known you, and even when I don't know your name, I know your face, and it's just its so familiar, it's comfortable. Uh, this is a, a special occasion anyway. This is the 50th, as it has been mentioned, Rough River Roundup, and it's also Bob Wessel's 50th, I mean also his A&A birthday, 54, isn't it? 50, 50th anniversary. Why did I give you four more years? Yeah. So it's not only the 50th of this, but it's the 50th of him too, and that's a, that's important to me. I can't, I was just telling Juanita, I cannot remember a time really when Kay and I long way with these good folks. So I'm saying all that to say I'm gratified to be here. And uh, listen, I've been here so many times, I'll try to say something different. No. Give Pat's story or something. No, that was a little rough for a mixed crowd. Uh, uh, you know, when I, uh, the longer I'm in this deal, uh, the more I am the more that my recovery is supposed to progress over the years, I get a greater respect for what we're about. And I don't only mean the the miracle of what we call the AA program, but a greater respect for the disease that we have experienced recovery from. It's keener with me now than it was a lot of years ago. I, the power of alcoholism is something to be reckoned with. And I have, it's been a long time since I've been shocked by someone's going out and drinking. I'm saddened, and sometimes as a person who's particularly close, it's like a kick in the stomach. I don't mean it doesn't hurt, but I'm not shocked. What I'm more and more amazed about as time goes on, is that this thing works like it. Because I came into Alcoholics Anonymous hopeless. You know, the first step is just an admission of hopelessness. Hopelessness is just saying that Bill Crawford is hopeless. There is, I couldn't drink and I couldn't not drink. My life could not be managed, controlled, orchestrated in any way by me to any success. And what you did was you gave me hope, which is implied in the second step. Had it not been for that, I would be like most folks. Most folks are not in rooms like this celebrating what we're celebrating and doing what we're doing. You know, the experts say that only 10% of people who experiment with, with alcohol uh, get that special thing from it that will later cause that addiction to it and to have that condition that we call alcoholism. 90% of the people who experiment with alcohol can enjoy it or not enjoy it or not even try it again, but they don't get that special relationship that we Or the way I like to put it, 1 in 10... I mean, nine in ten waste every drop they drink, and we uh, we we all know them. You know, they're everywhere. Well, they outnumber us nine to one. Yeah, we marry them. You know, which you, of course that creates this conference where you have two couples that one is one ain't. Yeah, you know. go to work for them. They're bad. Go to work for those non-alcoholics. What Dr. Silkworth, if we look, a precious chapter in our book, 
is a doctor's opinion. Here's a scientist, a guy, a physician, a guy that did not share our disease, but a man who treated thousands. And he noticed certain things. He didn't set out to do a scientific study or anything. He just observed certain things. And, and what he observed mostly was we're different. These people are different, he said. He said, I don't know why and I don't know exactly how, but they're different. They're even different in body. These people, when they drink, and they drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol, no matter what they say, they can say that I enjoy a dry martini or a cold beer when I'm on the yard. They're drinking for the drug effect, he said. The feeling of ease and comfort that comes when they use acts on them differently. It acted on me differently than it does normal people. If I tell you about my first drink or the first time I knew intoxication, then I'm telling you about your first drink, probably. Or at least I'm telling you about the drink that, that finally clicked, that finally worked. Because when I was 15 and a half years old, with every reason in the world to never take it up, I was raised in alcoholism. I was raised in a home with a dual problem. We had alcoholism and Southern baptism right there in the same house. <laughs> my mother taught the... Crawford Bible class for years, a group of women at the Ashburn Street Baptist, a good woman, a good Christian woman, a woman who taught me the values that we learn at our mothers and me. Maybe the values that bring us here when we can no longer live in the way we live. It's inside our skin. Maybe that's a big part of what gives us that head start. And I had an alcoholic daddy, a gentle and good man. He wasn't even profane or violent when he was drinking. He just drinking at wrong times and the wrong places and embarrassed us and humiliated us and made us feel secure because the, the disease of alcoholism works in the family, doesn't it? That's why we have a fine conference like this where we respect that the other side of the deal is these folks are just as sick and just as made ill by that alcoholic pathologic drinking as the other. And I came up knowing I never drink. But I was having trouble early, and I know I'm not unique. A lot of us have trouble early. Just couldn't do right. Couldn't stay still when I was supposed to stay still. Couldn't keep my mouth shut. You know, now they have a diagnosis, ADD, ADHD. I've got a grandson, it's ADD. They didn't have that back in my day. They didn't have a diagnosis that excused anything that I did. I came along before Ritalin. <laughs> I came along during Paddling, uh, which was the, uh, <laughs> the treatment of choice at that time. And if I had to remember what I was punished for... <laughs> I probably couldn't remember most of the time. I just know that I couldn't be still when I was supposed to be still. And I couldn't keep my mouth shut when I was supposed to keep my mouth shut. And so I'd have to stand out in the hall because I'd be punished or doing recess. I had to stand by a tree and not play ball. And as I got a little bit older, they started giving me that treatment of choice, that paddling. Some, a couple of us were talking about that earlier today, about how that works. And I just... Uh, I wasn't fitting in. I was not satisfying authority or the system. And so I, you know how Bill writes in the big book, I, one of the progressing, progressive signs of alcoholism was salt, lower companionship. I was doing that in second grade. Uh, <laughs> not, not consciously, but I just know in looking back that that's what I was finding my kind. And I tell you what my kind did along about puberty. Uh, I became a cat. Had my hair slicked back and great pomade on my hair. Pomade's a wonderful stuff if you're having trouble keeping your hair in place. And I was having trouble keeping my hair in place. I know that uh, I was amused by the, several years ago about the final net hairspray 
ad that show a lady who just had a hectic day, but at the end of the day, her hair was still in place. But I might hold your hair for three months. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was like, if a train hit you and they could find your head, uh, your hair would be just... Which has nothing to do with anything. It just This was the element down in front of Manzo Henry Drugstore that taught me how to look tough and wear those cat outfits and they were drinking. And this is what people call peer pressure. I'd never heard that term at that time, of course. But they, to be included with them was important to me. And so the need to be like them, included with them, was greater than my fear and guilt that I associated with beverage alcohol. And so I, you can't hear me. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> and you can tell I needed that. Um, I had guilt and fear associated with with beverage alcohol because of my upbringing, because of my religious upbringing, because of what I lived with. But I began to drink. I began to drink because of the importance it was to be with them, to be okay with them. I was a social drinker for a while. A lot of alcoholics don't understand social drinking. I was one. Best I can figure, about five weeks, I was a social drinker. Uh, I tell you what ended my social drinking. I ingested enough cheap wine one night at the Green Hill Cemetery. We'd go down there for privacy and at night to know the feeling of intoxication. And anything like uh, social drinking, anything like drinking with impunity, anything... Uh, Anything like drinking except for the effects produced by alcohol was gone that night. Because I found the magic we found. I found that special thing that only that 10%, so the expert gets, experts say, gets from it. it I, there's no way we can describe to the non-alcoholic what that is, can we? But I know that it... it, it it made me comfortable in a world that for the most part was uncomfortable for me. And maybe all adolescents are that way. But it worked. I was enough. I was okay. It filled a hole that I didn't even know was there until it was filled. And so I submit when something does something like that for you, you'll return and return to it. And I did. I drank at every opportunity. I went with the people who did it. I went where we were going to do it. And every time it worked, if it, no matter what its form, whether it was beer, wine, whiskey, whatever we were drinking that night, me and my crowd, it worked. Now there was, well, it was like the, the reward was great and the price was small. I don't mean the guilt and fear of, of what I was doing left me. And I told myself to lie that many of us tell ourselves maybe, that I, I'm not going to be like Daddy. I'm not going to drink that way. When I get older and I'm going to be rich and famous or whatever young people think they're going to be, I'm not going to do this. Right? I'm just having fun. And everybody in this room, I guess, knows that I wasn't just having fun. They, I was learning to live, to exist, to cope with my existence by the use of this stuff. Now, as I say, the, the rewards seemed great and the price seemed small. There were, you know, there were scrapes and things that I did that were embarrassing and, and things that I didn't like. I didn't write much puking during the training areas, but we all did during that training period. But we all did. That didn't separate me from the group. Uh, puking was, I guess we took a little pride in it at that time. And that was... That was the time, you know, when it worked in reverse. You remember those dear days when you drank five or six beers and told everybody the next day you had 16? That changes, doesn't it? You uh, drink 40 and tell that cop you've had two, but uh, <laughs> later on. 
But that was the time when the drinking was, you know, it was the, we were the hip crowd. And things right away, very quickly, got kind of bad. Now, my home was new, and when I came in day A, people would say, aren't you smart to come in so young, they would say. Because at the time I came in day A, I was 29, and at least at that time was considered young. That's changed a lot now. And they would say to me, I drank for 40 years, and I'd think to myself, you didn't drink like I did for 40 years. Because my drinking got bad. Quick. I was drinking differently from even these guys. Quickly. And even they were beginning to notice. Let me just tell you about my progression through this disease. And I don't need to I don't need to belabor you with a lot of drunken log and, you know, dates and, and, and lots of incidents. I'll just say what happened to me is probably what happened to you. If you're new and, and you're sitting in this room, you're probably doing like most of us, and you're probably seeing differences. You may be saying, you know, well, I, maybe I drank too much, but I'm not like that old geezer up there at that podium talking. <laughs> and as you stay, if you stay, You'll find out we're so much alike as uncanny. I can meet you and know you for five minutes. And you and I can relate on a level I cannot relate with my wife. And we've been married 53 years and known each other much longer than that. Because that similarity at that level that counts brings us together in a way that can't exist with me and someone who does not have, does not share that experience. Um, in the beginning, to be an alcoholic, it's got to do something for you. It's got to give you that reward. It's got to give you that thing that I just tried to describe. You know, we've often wondered, uh, what's the difference between me and them? You're going to hear my wife talking in the morning. You're going to hear Juanita talk on Sunday morning. And, I, you know... I know we baffle them with our drinking. But they baffle us too, don't they? You know, all the all the studies and government grants and everything to research this condition we call alcoholism. They probably killed a million rats, giving them seizures and all that stuff to try to understand this disease. To my knowledge, not one dime has been spent or not one great scientific mind has been uh, utilized to study them, the non-alcoholic. Now. So I've done it on my own. And I've had the perfect control group in my wife, Kay. She's one of the worst cases of non-alcoholism you'll ever see in your life. Isn't it? It's severe. Let me tell you how bad it is uh, in her case. And she didn't want any pity for this or anything. She, this is a bad case of non-alcoholism. She, she uh, now, if we go out for an anniversary dinner or whatever, we'll drink a glass of wine occasionally, maybe a couple of times a year. In our earlier years, when we were younger and maybe dating and early marriage, she has consumed enough to feel it. You know, when you, to feel it. You know what she does? She stops. Now let me <laughs> let me say that again for anybody that's new. Uh, she gets the pilot lit and then quits. That demands research. Uh, somebody should have looked into that a long time ago. So I said, why do you do that? She said, because I start to feel it, I feel that I'm losing control. And I don't like that feeling. That's funny, isn't it? The only thing that ever gave me any semblance of control, the only thing that ever made me feel like I was wrapped tight at all was the same stuff that makes her feel that she's losing control. She can't help it and I can't help it. We're built different. There's something different about us. And that's all this book is trying to tell us. That our book that we 
that someone years ago affectionately called the big book, that's all it's trying to tell us. Mr. Alcoholic, you're different. You can't help it. And that non-alcoholic can't help it. But here's something that can be done about it. So it did that thing for me, and I uh, began to have uh, what Dr. Silkworth taught when he was talking about the difference, when he was talking about the physiological difference. He said, I don't know what to call this, but an allergy. It's like they're allergic to something they can't resist. And he called it the phenomenon of craving. Every alcoholic knows what that is. You knew what that was. I knew what that was before I'd ever heard the term phenomenon of craving. I knew early in my drinking, if I were in a situation where only one or two drinks was available to me, I'd better refuse. Because even if I wanted to drink bad, if I had just one or just a couple, the discomfort, the agitation, the craving would be great. He would talk about in, in his presentation in that chapter we, that's called the doctor's opinion was this, this is a physical difference. And he talked about the different categories of alcoholism that, we, that it manifests itself in our personality in different ways. But he mainly talked about the whole lump of them. Drink because they want that effect. And when they start, they can't stop. And as we read further in the big book, when we drink, when Bill Crawford drinks, damage is done. And that was my dilemma. That was my deal. And so what happens to every alcoholic, and I've heard lots and lots of stories over the years, what happens to all of us is the reward gets smaller and the price gets bigger. If that weren't the case, we wouldn't be assembled in a room like this tonight. If that weren't the case, I wouldn't be going to my home group Tuesday night. I wouldn't be going to that big speaker meeting I go to on Wednesday night and those subsequent meetings, and I wouldn't be calling my sponsor. And I wouldn't be picking up the phone when those people I sponsor were calling me if if I didn't know that. I uh, started having those uh, amnesia spells. I would have these periods of time. I'd, uh, I didn't know I was having these amnesia spells, but I'd get a report uh, <laughs> on something I'd forgot. And I would always be verified. You deny it, so there's always some other witness that will verify, well, yeah, you didn't do that. Yeah, well, that seemed to be. I, uh, about three years ago, I talked at an Al-Anon conference in, uh, in Georgia. And I was the token AA speaker. And I mentioned that, and a lady came up to me afterwards and said, uh, I'm not an alcoholic, and I've had blackouts. And I didn't argue with her. I guess non-alcoholics can have blackouts. But if you're new and you're sort of smoking us over, and you started, you had these blackout spells, these amnesia periods, consider signing up, because it does seem to happen more to us than it does every. I always say, uh, you're going to test that. Get one of your non-alcoholics, you know, and they'll remember everything. You know, we're, we're heading into the holiday period. Alcoholic, you know, non-alcoholic be drunk during the holiday, you know, New Year's Eve. Uh, boy, that's amateur night if you've ever seen it with a, uh, be non-alcoholics out there just drinking, having a good time. Dangerous night to be out too, because not you know those non-alcoholics be have a blood alcohol count of about a point oh six, and it's all over the road. They just had no training at all. You know, <laughs> uh, there are people in this room been blowing a thirty-eight and been driving just as straight as an arrow. Cause uh, of practice. Now they might be going sixteen miles an hour, but they uh, usually keep it between the. Y'all remember, we all remember those nights when you get that, you know, you get those three lines down to one. And if it's a chilly night, you might have your head out the window. It's stuffy in the car. Anyway, uh, 
these are things that happen to alcoholics, and I begin to lose control of the amount I was drinking. That's alcoholism. Non-alcoholics don't lose control. Now, I got a job one time, and I was uh, I was about 25 years old, and it was with a company that sent me to Atlanta to to go to school. Uh, it would send me down a couple of times, but this is the first time to go to a week's school of training with his company. And the first night, when the boys will be boys, we were all away from family. We went out to the bars and the strip joints and this kind of thing. And I didn't drink like them. And I got separated from them. I don't know if you all ever got separated from your group. I got separated from my group a lot. Uh, or maybe my group separated themselves. <laughs> but I... Uh, I remember I was just out on the streets of Atlanta in the wee-wee hours of the morning trying to get back to the Cox Carlton Hotel. And I can remember this comes and goes of me staggering and trying to find something that looked like the hotel we were staying in. And I can remember the little relief of getting undressed and lying down and finally getting some sleep. Unfortunately, I had not made it back to the Cox Carlton Hotel. I was on the front porch of that building across from the Fox Theater there. I know how they are in Atlanta now, but back there in the 60s, they were pretty small-minded about that, and somebody, somebody turned me in. and I, The cop was waking me up holding my pants and said, Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Well, if I'd had a, a month, to talk to that man, I couldn't have told him how ashamed I was. Little semicircle crowd out there of yuppies with their briefcase watching as I'm putting my pants on. It's a way to start a job, you know. Uh, and the people had to come and bail me out of jail with that school. I didn't get fired because you know how we can talk. This was an accident. I shouldn't have done it. You know, it'll never happen again type thing. Well, you know what was most memorable about that trip was not that. As shameful and, and as bad as that was, and how much that hurt me to the core, what was the most significant thing about that deal was at the end of that week, a guy about my age came up. He was from Greenville, South Carolina. He said, I know you're going to Greensboro. And he said, I'd like to help you with the gas if you could take me back as far as Greenville to my home and and of course, I agreed to do it, and I asked him to drive. And as we were going out to head out of Atlanta on to Highway 85, he watched me reach under the seat and pull out that brown bag and take a honk off that bottle. And he looked at me like they look at us, because he knew what would happen. He knew what had happened to me. And he said something like, you really like that stuff, don't you? And I said something macho, like, oh, yeah, that kind of looked like only real men drink. And he told me this story uh, that I, I've never forgotten. I don't know why for a long time. I, I didn't know why for a long time why this story stuck with me. I know now, and I've known for a long time. One time in his past, he was in a college fraternity some and got drunk and tore up a bathroom. Something, something horrible to him. It didn't sound that bad to me, but it was just horrible to him. And he said, I've, since then, I've never done that. I've never drunk. I've never had alcohol in my system. And I knew that I'd done much worse with my drinking, and I knew that I had made that pledge time and time and time again at age 25. And somehow I knew in retrospect, when my mind got a little clear on this, there were two men in that car. About the same age, about the same deal. You know, I think he was married with a couple of kids, and I was married with a couple of kids. We're on the same career path, or at least I thought we were. Shake us up in the sack, and you probably couldn't have told the difference, really. We were so similar. We were so similar that neither one of us could drink successfully. He went crazy when he drank. My behavior was more and more unpredictable as my drinking went on and more antisocial. Neither one of us could drink. But the dissimilarity, the thing that separated us beyond any mutual understanding was that I couldn't not drink. 
I'd made that decision many times and I couldn't live up to it because I couldn't not drink. And I wish I could say because of that experience, the humiliation and degradation of that deal that I never drank again, but I had more drinking to do. And it got worse. And so on June, uh, I mean in the middle of July, one hot afternoon, I was flying home from St. Louis. I'd been working for a crooked company. I'd been up there for a couple of weeks. You know, with the, <laughs> with the microphone stuff, I don't know when I started. So I don't know if I... I'm going to try to end at an appropriate time, but I'm not sure. I I started a little late, didn't I? So if I'm not done till 11, you'll understand. Um, <laughs> I'd been up there for two weeks drunk because I'd already gotten that place when I started. I couldn't stop, and Kay came in and picked me up at the airport in Greensboro. Got came in and got me in the airport lounge. I was tapering off. Uh, it was an art I never quite got down pat. <laughs> that self-detox is hard to do with uh, no attendance there to give you a dosage. And I would... Uh, well, Kay could never tell the difference in tapering off and drinking. It looks a lot alike. Uh, <laughs> to the untrained eye, you know, it's a lot of similarities. Uh, and one thing that would confuse her, I would overdose, and I'd get drunk, tapering off, and I'd have to start over, and that would uh, add to her confusion. Because I'd tell her, no, I quit drinking yesterday. Today I'm just tapering off. This is, and I would overdose, and, and I'd, from a three-day drunk, I'd taper off another week, that kind of thing, and until finally I'd just hit that, that place where I couldn't drink anymore. And so... Uh, I'm in. I, she leaves the house with the kids for some reason after she got me home, and I put on my my drinking attire. I had a I had a drinking outfit, my underwear. Uh, <laughs> I always got reduced to my underwear. My fun drinking. Uh, you ever seen those ads? Uh, uh, what well, we all do. We, we if you watch ball games, you see the beer ads. They're having such a good time. <laughs> and they're playing tug of war on the beach, those beautiful gals and athletic guys, drinking Coors Light. Let me tell you about my fun drinking. Uh, usually I'd come to uh, and, and need something, and I'd go to the refrigerator and get that beer and drink as much as I could down. And that gag reflex would hit me, and I'd grab my mouth, and I'd blow the beer out my nose. Uh, you never see that on a, a beer commercial. Uh, I've always thought they ought to show the other side sometime. Well, just have one of those pretty girls blow one out her nose to, uh, to show there's another side. Well, at any rate... Uh, Kay left the house, and I'm tapering off. I'd made her stop, I guess, get a sack full of quarts of beer or something, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. The grace of God. I, I, I don't know. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. I know for years. Alcoholics Anonymous used to call on my daddy. The man that brought AA to Greensboro would call on my daddy, Mr. Hunter. So I knew about AA. I knew it was about not drinking, and I called. I don't know why. There was some desperation there, but I mean, and probably some wanting to do a grandstand play for her. So when she got home, I could say I've called AA, and the man called me from AA after I'd called the answering service, and we talked. And I asked him in the conversation, how long have you not had a drink? I, as I remember, he said four years. That was an eternity to me. And I, the next question I asked him, how did you do that? And he gave me the best answer you could have given a guy like me. He said, a man can do almost anything one day at a time. And the more we talked, he said, you're drinking, aren't you? No, I'm tapering off. And, uh, he was about as narrow-minded as Kay about that. Let me hurry up this drinking and get sober so I can sit down. 
it was almost another year, another 11 months before I called that man again. And that other, that next 11 months was bad. Drinking as bad as any drinking I know about. And so uh, I knew about Kay. She was going to the meetings. And when I would listen, she would tell me about the meetings. Because from that conversation... From that conversation I'd had with Bill, and I had his name and number, so when she got home, I could say, hush, I've called, turned myself into the A&A, and here's the man's name and number. He agrees, I'm not ready yet, but I'm going to call him when I am. And she put that number in a safe place, and it was one night when things were ugly in our house that she called him again. She Or she made a second call. This was her call. And she talked to a stranger on the phone, a strange voice, a strange man, and told him what was happening in our home. And she told somebody for the first time who not only understood, but he offered a solution. He listened to her sympathetically. She'll tell you tomorrow. And he said, hold the phone, and I want you to talk with Lib. And that's how Kay got started going to Alabama. Let me tell you what happens, I think, my experience. You know, we focus on that drunk. Get that drunk fixed and we'll all be good. Even if that drunk doesn't want to be fixed, come on and go fix him. Make this horror go away. But I'm a great believer if just somebody in that mess will start doing something, things change. Things change there. I didn't get sober. I didn't get sober the next day after she went to Al-Anon or the next month or the next six months. Things changed. What changed, I guess, most importantly, was that my disease began to lose its power over her. I credit Al-Anon as much as anything for my getting to the doorway of Alcoholics Anonymous. I called. She looked at me on June the 2nd of 1967, which through this moment is my sobriety date. Thank God. And she looked at me and said, can we call Bill? And I was coming off another one of those drunks. And I was sick and shaking, and I was the only person in the world and full of fear, just like the hundred times before. Damage was always done when I was. Relationships ruined. Checks to pick up, damage to repair. And I said, yes, because the, the fight was gone. I'd hit that place that drunks need to hit before there's an opportunity to start working. And so she... Uh, always mention this for the young people in the room that don't remember phones when they had holes in them. Y'all punch buttons now, or maybe you just do that on a cell phone. Back then, you had to get a phone, get your finger in it seven times and run her around. Well, she knew I couldn't do that. So she ran her around for me. And Bill answered the phone, and when he knew who it was, he said, are you about ready to throw in the towel now? And I allowed it away. Fairly late hour on a Friday night, and that Saturday morning, June 3rd, 1967, Bill came to my house and did the 12-step call that I hope we're still doing. He sat in my living room of that little house where the payments were $100 a month, and I hadn't made them in a long time, and Cameron Brown Mortgage was going to sell it on the courthouse steps. And he acted like I was the most important person in the world. And he sat and he talked about me. And at some point, he made the deal that I hope we make when we go on a call like this. Will you not drink today? Can you drink? go today without a drink? And go with me to Alcoholics Anonymous tonight. And I agreed. He offered to pick me up, but I didn't want the AA van pulling up and being buried. <laughs> I said, I'll meet you there. I had a repossession-proof mercury. I don't know if you have. If you're going to do any more drinking, let me give you a hint. This is a good idea. I had a mercury that when the bank would show up to repossess it, I could show them the wrecked other side. It was wrecked pretty bad, and they'd give me an extension. So uh, it still run, but it wasn't good enough for the bank to take back. So we took it over to the Starmount group that night. And I went into the ladies' study at the Starmount Presbyterian Church where this Starmount group was being held. It was an open speaker meeting, and there was probably no more than 18 or 20 people in that room. And I sat down feeling just as conspicuous as you felt at your first day at me, like everybody was wondering why I was there. If you knew, don't worry about that. 
drunks, alcoholics, whether they're at the Elks Club or NAA, ain't paying any attention to anybody but themselves. You walk in here with two heads, and they're not going to, they're checking themselves out, you know. But I felt that way, and somebody, after the reading, I didn't understand, bellied up and told the story that we tell. The story I never tire of. Always has that happy ending, doesn't it? You know I'm going to give you a happy ending tonight. Always happens. I always anticipate and gratify by the happy ending of your story. Tonight, a guy will get up and say, I've never made it. I'm drunk right now. But so far, every talk I've heard had that happy ending. And he did that. Now, I've been sober one day. You know what your attention span is when you've been sober one day? The two distinct miracles happened that night. All of thousand miracles had occurred to the very fact I was breathing in and out and the fact I was there. But two distinct in my memory miracles occurred that night. One was I understood his message. Now, I couldn't repeat it in a sentence he said five minutes after the meeting. But I understood what he was saying. I knew that he was saying to us that he had drunk hopelessly. Drunk alcohol hopelessly. He went into great detail. That he'd come here and he hadn't been drinking and life was good. I knew that. I understood that. More importantly, I believed him. I hadn't believed anything or anybody in a long time. Didn't even believe in God. I'm going to hurry up and be sober a while because what happens? Not every time, but I believe most times. When we sit our tail down in a meeting of alcoholics and officers for the first time, something happens that makes us different. Now, we don't always grasp that. We don't always capitalize on that. I know that. But something happens. And the opportunity after that happens for good things to happen are beyond your wildest imaginings. It's a... Uh, you know, there is a requirement for being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Just one. is a desire to stop drinking. Desire. What a powerful word. How many times have you wanted to give that to someone, to give desire, to teach it, to explain it, do something to make that person that's dear to you to, to have it. But you can't do that. You can't give it away. You can't impose it on somebody. It's either God hands it to you on that silver platter like He did me, or He doesn't, I guess. If it had to do with deserving, if it had to do with character, if it had to do with smarts, if it had to do with anything going for me to earn that desire, I'd have never gotten it, I guess. But I got it somehow during that experience without knowing it. I had a desire to stop drinking. And I started going to... Now, let me tell you what came to you. Let me tell you the candidate that came to you. I'd been fired from the same place four times. I didn't know what I was going to tell them this time to get back to work. But I, did. I was unemployed and unemployed. I was kicked out of all the watering holes. You know, we sought lower companionship that I mentioned. Even the lower companions were how tired of me. And there were places I couldn't return to. I'm most proud of the Bamboo Lounge. Bamboo Lounge, let me put it to you this way. The Bamboo Lounge is, is where you went when you couldn't go anyplace there. You, you, you didn't notch down from the Bamboo Lounge. That's it. Uh, you know, I, I work with people now, sponsor people, and I have to fit AA into their schedule. Well, we've got soccer practice on Monday night. have to do this, uh, you know, on Wednesdays and this kind. My nights were free. All meetings at that time were 8 p.m. And Well, when you've been kicked out for life in the Bamboo Lounge and, and the Varsity Grill and the Ivan House and some of these other places, you don't have to check your calendar so if you can free up a night for AA. And I begin to go to AA every night. Things begin to change. Back then, and I hate to play old-timer, but some of you in the room, and Bob and uh, Pat, and some of us were talking about this afternoon, back what we do now, what is done in my community now, there's a lot of tutoring, leading people through the steps, and I've done it with countless pigeons. Countless people I'm working with. But back then, there was less of that, at least where I was from. What was more of was going out and calling on those drunks. 
trying to trying to carry the message and going to bad neighborhoods and not so bad neighborhoods and seedy hotels, sometimes a little nicer hotels and motels. We didn't have any prospects meeting us, meeting us at the door saying, you got some steps I can start working? It was mostly, a, <laughs> mostly you know, get me back in the big bed, you know, take me down to the hospital to get a shot. And we were talking about the wonder drug of peraldehyde. If you could find a doctor to give that peraldehyde, you could at least end up with a steady drunk. And we did that, and things began to change. We stayed sober, and we'd go around to the surrounding towns, carloads of us, and make talks and do the things that we do in alcoholics. I'm going to end up, I just, the other week I was talking somewhere and got to think about Mary Jo. You know, it, with that time that uh, when we're new, or at least when Bill Crawford was new, I thought I had so much. I could do some real healing. You know, I learned a couple of sentences in the big book and discussed some steps before I'd actually started working. I'm just a head full of knowledge and just saw myself just grabbing hold of somebody and him kneeling at my feet as he healed, you know, went forth to never drink again and become delegate or something three months later. That never happened. You know, the book tells me that uh, my motivation, what maybe keeps that desire keen, is that I scared to death that I might drink again. As much as I love being here and with good friends and old friends, and as, as good as I'm going to feel at the end of this weekend for this experience, the main reason I'm here, the main reason I'm at my home group, the main reason I read that, those things I read in the morning, the main reason I'm on my knees at night and saying those prayers, as much as I enjoy that and feel good about it, the main reason is if I stop doing any one of those things for long enough, I'll drink again. And I know that Alcoholics Anonymous, by definition, is a fellowship. I must be with you to do these things. And the book says, no matter what my motivation, and my sponsor and I talk, he's been sober long in me, and we talk about, we still have that sense of urgency about this thing. Not that we're walking around afraid we're going to drink all the time, but we have that sense of urgency, respect for this disease. And somehow, just in the last couple of weeks, got to think about Mary Jo. Mary Jo was the town drunk. When I was in Greensboro, and that's a pretty big town, too. There's about a quarter of a million people in Greensboro. The metropolitan area is probably about 350,000. So to be a town drunk, you got to do something. Mary Jo was, uh, would get drunk just the wrong time, the wrong places. I was in uh, working for a little alcoholism ed- education center at one period of time, and she would be there a lot, and we'd have to do something with her. And every time Mary Jo got drunk, she lost her teeth. Vocational rehabilitation or something to get her a new set of teeth. And you just end up with Mary Jo, and I can remember that uh, you just have her. I remember Kay had her one night. She just ended up, she made that call, and I was gone somewhere, and Kay had her. And I remember Kay saying it was a cold night, and she had to get, uh, you know, bed and boards from Mary Jo, and she pulled up Salvation Army and got Mary Jo out of the car and took off. You know, she didn't want her back at the Salvation Army, didn't take her, but that's what you'd do. That's what you'd do with Mary Jo. It'd be cold, and maybe the Salvation Army or some shelter would take her. But if not, if they were full, you may have to reach in your pocket and get her a pretty decent motel room for the night to get her off the street. Mary Jo lived into her 60s. I'd visit her in jail, and we didn't have any heart-to-heart spiritual talks. I didn't explain the steps to her or anything, or she didn't talk about how she wanted recovery. I'd just bring her cigarettes and sit with her. One morning they found Mary Jo beat to death on the railroad track. And she was just just somebody you had to get on your hands and try to get her off your hands. She was just somebody who was just kind of aggravated. I went to her graveside service, and nobody else was there but me except for two grown sons and their family. Family. And I'm sure some other people would have been there had they known about it, but it was not much publicity. The minister from Urban Ministry preached the Graveside Memorial. And I remember going up to her sons and said, I, and saying, I thought a lot of your mother. I heard myself saying, I thought a lot of your mother. I could have said, I miss your mother. 
I could have said, I love your mother. I could have said, your mother in many ways saved my life. And more importantly, I could have said to them, your mother and me were exactly alike. Something happened to me. A gift had been given to me that for somehow was that she couldn't grasp. Maybe that's what we do. Maybe that's what being a maximum service to God and those about us. Maybe that's the deal. Not that I'm going to heal. Not that I'm going to impart some great wisdom or preach over somebody and fix them. But I'm just there. And maybe it's the Mary Joes of the world. Maybe it's the Mary Joes of your town. No great wisdom. Like I said, Mary Jo and I never sat down and had any kind of sponsor relationship or any sort of program relationship. Just there. So maybe that's what I got sober for, is just to do for somebody else in a way that I would have never done before. To count on this earth to be there for somebody who's hurting worse than me, who's more desperate than me, who may, whose needs may be greater than mine. You know, a man once said, and this is a man that uh, many believe was the personification of God as they understand God. He once said, if you... If you clothe him, you've done it to me. If you fed her, you've fed me. If you visited them in prison, you've visited me. Because if you do this for the least of them, you've done it for me. So maybe that's what we're here. Now, I'll close by saying this. A good friend gave me a book a number of years ago. Not an AA book, but a book written by a good friend of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's full of little stories, little spiritual stories, and and my favorite is just a short paragraph about the ancient holy man that's kneeling to pray. And as he kneels to pray, he sees the crippled, the beggar, the, the ill, those hurting. And he says to God, as he understands God, if you're such a kind and loving God, why haven't you done something? And out of silence, his God says, I have done something about this. I made you. Well, I can't be grateful enough that he made Bill. That's what he's done by this fatal this horrible condition we call alcoholism. But he made you. And he also made me. Happy anniversary on the conference and happy birthday, Bob.